Thank you everyone for joining us. We're here today to discuss uh, the future of encryption together with Hub Security's very own VP uh, of Corporate Development, Alon Saban. Um, this is his first time uh, joining us, so welcome. Um, we're also going to be joined uh, by a number of encryption and security experts, including Thomas Stengel, Paul Starrett, Mark Kaplan, Natalie Kilber, and Neva Gonda. So thank you guys so much for being here today. We'll start our webinar with a brief introduction from Alon uh, on the place of encryption within the tech and security scheme. And then our panelists will each get a chance to briefly introduce themselves. After, we'll get into a bit of a deeper discussion on everything related to encryption security, including its ongoing threats and solutions. Uh, as usual, we'll leave about 30 minutes at the end of our discussion for a short Q&A. So if you have any questions throughout the discussion, feel free to drop them in the Q&A section below, and we will get to them later on. If you cannot find the Q&A, no worries. You can put it in the chat box. We can see it there too. Now, we have an impressive lineup of panelists here tonight, and I'm excited to have them each introduce themselves to you. But first, we'll begin with a few words from Elon before we hand off the mic. Um, Elon, welcome. Thank you for joining us. I'm excited to have you here uh, for your very first webinar. Uh, first and not last. Thank you, Shatni. Uh, <clears throat> so a few words about uh, myself. Uh, my name is Elon, Elon Saban. I'm the VP of Corporate Development in uh, Hub in Hub Security. Uh, in my background, I had a long and fruitful career uh, in the IDF. I come from the uh, defense uh, defense world. I uh, mostly most of my career did in the Central Infosec Unit of Israel, the National Central Infosec Unit, Matsov. Uh, during my years. Uh, I was lucky and fortunate to take part of the revolution that uh, Israel as a nation state uh, had in the, in the defense uh, scheme and processes, moving from high barriers of encryption to advanced uh, cybersecurity and cyber defense skills. So I'm uh, thrilled uh, to join Hub after uh, that career and actually having my first webinar. Um, I would like to maybe elaborate uh, our motivation and our understanding, and maybe just a, a clear overview of, um, of how do we um, see that field of encryption. So I think today, cybersecurity is more popular than ever. And it's due to the fact uh, that the technology is basically uh, affects and uh, present in every aspect of our life. Uh, we are becoming increasingly dependent. It. You can think about anything on the personal level, professional level, uh, national level, communications, like any field you can uh, think about. You can see uh, IT and OT and software uh, technologies. And these actually create uh, a huge cyber will, which is becoming um, a zone that can be uh, leveraged in the attack and there are risks and threats. They are constantly evolving and actually becoming more sophisticated and more targeted. And like every cat and mouse game, uh, the security means are evolving as well. Now, when you think about it, encryption doesn't get encryption as, as, a, as a capability, doesn't get 
the place that it deserves because eventually it's an important factor in the game of security. It's a fundamental building stone. And today it is embedded in uh, every sector and uh, it's actually an uh, enabler in uh, every field and aspect. Uh, defense, commerce, safe communication, privacy, data sharing, even uh, activism, social rights, freedom of speech. And I think we are seeing more and more utilization of encryption uh, for actually stuff that are uh, not uh, too good for humanity, like uh, cybercrime, uh, increasing ransomware attacks, uh, and of course, terror. But eventually, it's a, it's a building blocks and uh, it is a, an enabler. Now, you then got, you don't, you're not getting off uh, only as a, being an enabler and uh, encryption is, uh, is, has been and always will be a target. And uh, the vast adoption of it, uh, the critical uh, information that runs uh, over it, the constant uh, evolution uh, of it are praised and sometimes taken for granted. And in every sector, uh, it has been uh, disrupted and attacked. Uh, not in breaking the decryption, we used to do it in the past, but rather in going around it and uh, hacking the mechanism. Now, every once in a while, uh, there is a revolution uh, in, uh, in this field. And I think if you take a look in encryption over time, uh, we've, we've experienced a constant evolution aligning with the technology and the sector uh, development. Models, uh, encryption models and encryption schemes became uh, faster and stronger and uh, crypto has been used uh, widely uh, for uh, different use cases. But now the revolution that becomes in, uh, in front of our eyes is actually the uh, crypto and quantum computing. Uh, it's a new out of the box method that impacts today's solutions and today's capabilities and will actually deliver new opportunities, uses, of course, uh, threats, and uh, will uh, supply the next level of uh, communications and mean of security that we have. So <clears throat> we at Hub decided uh, we should cover uh, the future of encryption via a webinar. And uh, we have a wonderful diver diversified panel uh, when we will touch on the technology, the hype and the myths, uh, regulation, adoption, uh, the future impact, and the way to deal with it. We're gonna cover the revolution as it happens. So thank you very much for joining. And I'm looking, for, for, I'm looking forward and thrilled for the fruitful discussion. Great, Alana, I love that introduction. And I just had this uh, tune now. Talking about a revolution. Um, so thank you for that great introduction. Um, and we're really glad that you could be here with us today. Now I'd like to just take a few minutes um, to do a quick introduction round, starting with Thomas. Maybe you would mind giving our listeners a bit of background on yourself and what your field of expertise is. Sure, I'm Tom Stengel. I'm the Director of Business Development at ID Quantique. I work in the Quantum Safe Solutions Division of ID Quantique. My background is in advanced video processing, artificial intelligence, and quantum 
technologies. Specifically, I work on bringing those different kinds of technologies from their early solutions into semiconductor chip solutions that can be used in everyday applications out in the world. And uh, looking forward to today's uh, discussion. And I think uh, Paul Spirit will be introducing himself next. Great, thank you, Thomas. Uh, Paul? Yeah, let me just find the mute button here. Um, thank you for having me. Thank you, Thomas. Um, I am Paul Sterrett. I am founder and chief data scientist at privacylabs.ai. And my background, I'm essentially, I started in um, technology, well, technology law, and, but my background is really much stronger in uh, technology. I was an, uh, an engineer at RSA Security for, for a spell. Um, doing things like tests, um, API development, things like that. And then eventually moved more into artificial intelligence, which is where I spend a good part of my time in the area of compliance technology. Encryption is always a part of that. And so the pr perspective I bring today isn't as deep technically as the other panelists. So that would be, uh, I think maybe the best I could uh, do to give you a sense of who I am. Great, we're happy that you could be here with us regardless. Um, Maeva, you're next. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to join this esteemed panel. I am the chair of the IEEE Quantum Security Group, which is uh, why I was asked to join the panelists. I'm also the chair of the Quantum AI Institute. And my work primarily focuses on cybersecurity risk management, which I began several years ago while working in digital healthcare and financial services. And uh, my passion for, for quantum was ignited while I was working as a scholar for the Joint Quantum Institute for a leader at the National Institutes of Standards. And so again, thank you for the invitation. I'm excited to join you guys. Yeah, and we're excited to have you here too. Um, Mark, go ahead. Thank you. Uh, um... Hi everyone, so I'm Mark, I'm the CEO of a company VeryCloud, it's um, startup in, uh, in Paris. Um, before that I used to work in academia for a little bit more than 10 years and my main focus was to try to understand what would cybersecurity look like once quantum is everywhere. Uh, so we have quantum networks, we have quantum computers, how does it change the, the landscape of, uh, of cryptography? Then um, I created uh, VeryCloud with two, two co-founders here in, uh, in, in Paris. Uh, and the goal is now, of course, to, to use all this knowledge that we have developed and develop um, industrial products uh, out of them. Great, all Thank great you. questions that we'll answer here today. Um, Natalie, you're next. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. It's also a pleasure to be here, especially with um, people that gravitas. I'm Natalie Kilber. I'm CEO and founder of Nablaco. And with Nablaco, I've been working on use cases with businesses to leverage frontier technologies like quantum computing, quantum technologies in the communication space, and especially in venture capital, evaluating risks and potentials in emerging markets tangential to those quantum technologies. And the sectors were usually cloud communications and automotive. And I'm excited that I recently started a uh, part-time position to support MHP Porsche as a manager for strategic job topics in AI, cybersecurity, and yeah, emerging technologies. Uh, I have a wild background in academia, which is 
not very coherent. So um, it's possibly best to start that I'm a guest for topics in quantum software design and development at the Institute of Software Engineering for um, uh, ISTE at the University of Stuttgart. Um, and I'm very happy to collaborate there. Great, thanks, Nanli. Um, before we jump into our discussion, now that we're wrapped up with the introductions, um, I just want to give a brief overview. We're going to be touching on uh, three topics today. The first one being the state of quantum cryptography, excuse me. Um, the second one being quantum cryptography and quantum computing uh, use cases and effects. Um, and the third, post-quantum post cryptography and security. So what we can look forward, forward to in the future. Um, and Natalie, I'm gonna start with you on the first topic, which relates to the hypes, uh, the reality, the practical use cases of uh, quantum cryptography. Maybe you can tell us a bit, what are some of the myths and truths surrounding the current state of quantum cryptography? And is it true its development will make classic encryption completely obsolete? Oh, thank you, Sterni. Yeah, well, this is my personal opinion. Um, and the answer to if it makes classical encryption obsolete is no, highly unlikely, <laughs> as we all know. Um, with the myths around quantum computing, it's quantum computers at this state are at this state are integrated circuits. So we still have um, host CPUs. We still have no random access memory. So we don't have quantum RAM, which is a huge um, bottlenecks, so to say, for the theoretical part. And in that sense, a lot of algorithms that claim to have exponential speed up or radix speed up are, are grounded upon theoretical calculations, but not been tried out because we have these bottlenecks and error correction, fidelity, we have very slow clock times, and that's only a couple of bottlenecks, not even ranging outside of how much of depending on the quantum processor, if it's in silicon, if it's, if it's iron trap, if it's in a cryogenic refrigerator, it's, it, all, it all depends on the use case because it's still in fundamental research and the bottlenecks are spread across every domain. So it's like talking about a baby kitten, like fundamental research, that technology is like a little baby kitten that can grow into a tiger and slay prey like it can slay RSA encryption, it can break all these systems in theory, but we're not there yet. So we have this baby kit and on our hands, we have to nurture it, we have to build it. Um, that doesn't mean that tomorrow RSA will be broken everywhere because the point is for once, at once, um, intelligent life has, the, has a lifetime. So it, there's intelligent lives that of the intercepted encrypted data that is important or that is relevant. So let's say if you have, if you manage to get data for the automotive industry or for healthcare, or let's say any vaccine for the coronavirus, it won't last for 20 years probably, but nation state data you have to protect 30 years onwards. Um, and in that sense, if you have not so long-lived data, not so hard encryption or not so safe encryption methods are fine, but that depends on your use case. If you look towards nation state data, you have to encrypt it 
properly now because adversaries could take it and decrypt it in 30 years, for example. So that's the myth that we have at hand. We have like a absolutely amazing, interesting part of fundamental research that we want to nurture, to bring into the market. And then there are small parts of the quantum computing technology space that are already mature, but it's not a full Turing like quantum computer that we can speak of as of now. Thank you, Natalie. Mark, maybe you can tell us what is quantum cryptography actually useful for and what guarantee does it offer that you don't get uh, with fully traditional uh, crypto systems? Right, yeah, thanks. So the, um, what I was saying is that I've been looking at what the, the, this picture of what cybersecurity looks like in a, in a quantum world and what we've just heard from Natalie is that of course there is a threat from quantum computers. Uh, I guess lots of people in the audience know that. Uh, what we know also is that it's not only a threat, it's also an opportunity. We can also use quantum encryption, quantum information to, to get better encryption and companies like ID Quantic where Thomas works provide fantastic hardware for that. You can buy these solutions, you can deploy them, they already exist. Um, now speaking, I, I think it would be interesting because we might not have exactly the same point of view with Thomas, but what I believe is the, the main advantage of, uh, of uh, these, these hardware, quantum cybersecurity in general, is that it's the only technology that can uh, guarantee uh, long-term security. If your data require uh, security for 20, 30 or 40 years, uh, then quantum is the solution. I don't think, well, if you look at the methods to, to assess long-term security with classical uh, crypto systems, uh, you don't have the same level of, uh, it's not as scientific as with quantum where this uh, actually relies on proofs. So I, I believe this is an important distinguishing factor between the quantum cryptography and classical uh, cryptography that can be exploited today with current technology. Thomas, maybe you can give us a bit of an idea um, from your perspective on how quantum technologies can be used to improve encryption. Yeah, so the classical encryption today is, you know, it's a, it's a mathematical lock and key. And the key is derived now from randomness, which is uh, built from the foundation of entropy. And for decades, generations now, we've we started out using very simple random number generators, pseudo-random number generators, and each 10-year period, roughly, the quality of the random number generators has improved, and it's reached the point where the next generation of, of that technology, quantum random number generation derived from quantum entropy, is not only available today at the semiconductor level, but it's already begun deploying into use cases. It's already in um, five different cell phones you can get around the world, some Internet of Things applications. It's still in its infancy, but it is already deployed in those applications. And then also, um, for larger things like data centers, when you talk about existing um, encryption and the keys and how do you handle those keys so they can't be stolen in transit to where they need to go, uh, the technology's quantum key distribution, using quantum technology to ensure that when a key is being transmitted, it can't be stolen, or if somebody does steal it, you know it's been stolen and you can undo whatever that key can get at. Those are a couple applications that are already deploying today uh, with quantum technology. I think uh, maybe elaborating more about um, what uh, Thomas just said, 
the thing with the encryption today is the fact that everyone knows the model, everyone knows the mathematical uh, scheme, and the secret is the key. Now, having a qualitative uh, key with a, a different, uh, with, a, with a huge uh, entropy that will be strong over time uh, is actually a challenge. Uh, and uh, what uh, quantum uh, technologies can do, they uh, can create a random number generator, quantum random number generator, which is highly qualitative uh, and uh, can support uh, today's today encryption schemes with uh, high value keys. So I think that's one aspect that uh, quantum uh, encryption and cryptography is actually useful for, for today encryption. Great, thank you, Elon. Mm -hmm. um, maybe, maybe you can tell us um, what are some of the current and um, upcoming regulations and standards in the field of quantum cryptography and post-quantum encryption? Sure. There's quite a bit of activity going on in this space. There is some legislation that has been introduced uh, regarding quantum, primarily as it relates to national security. Um, the quantum threat as it relates to national security. But as it relates to standardization, there's tons of activity going on. NIST for one, the National Institute of Standards in the US has been um, working on post-quantum standards, cryptography standards for quite some time. And we anticipate, basically uh, we're expecting them to start sharing um, their final decision in the next 24 months or so, uh, based on where, where it stands now. But there's quite a bit of information that is helpful for leaders now. Um, actually, about three days ago, DHS published um, new information, which could be easily taken advantage of by organizations worldwide. You don't need to be in the United States, for example. Essentially, they released a roadmap to help organizations protect their informations and their systems while the NIST standards are underway. And uh, one thing uh, they do stress is that it's important for organizations to go ahead and take inventory of their cryptography systems, the data requiring protection and begin prioritizing how they'll begin to manage the transition. So what basically there's, the laws are not yet have not yet become law and their standards process is not yet, they're not yet final, but there's quite a bit of activity, you know, in Europe also, not only the US uh, in different places going on regarding this. Thank you. Um, I'd like to move on to our second topic for today, um, which involves um, use cases and effects of quantum cryptography and computing. Um, Paul, given the rapid advancements we expect in technology in today's context, um, can we expect frontline professionals to be able to keep up? Um, and is any advancement at all useless if it can't be adopted uh, on a broader scale? Yes, and I'm going to, <clears throat> I consider myself the junior person in the room here with regard to math and uh, quantum computing, but I think that perspective is also useful. Uh, I, I do have some, you know, fairly deep experience with artificial intelligence, which I don't care for the name. I prefer machine learning or deep learning or whatever. 
But what I see is, I'll just give a really quick example here. I am the organizer of the San Francisco Python Meetup Group and also of our yearly conference, pybay.com, which is this Saturday, by the way. And we often have people come and speak and do um, on topics. One is quantum computing. There's usually about 200 developers that show up. And I would tell you that about half of them tune out when they see the, the topic come up. So that I, I think is a challenge in, in, in adoption. Um, I don't know, sometimes there's a vertical uh, professional kind of uh, path that people can take. Um, so I don't, I, I think it's, that is going to be an issue. I think there's an issue with quantum computing, quantum cryptography with regard to the hype cycle. What can it do? Um, and that kind of thing. The other big thing I see and to the question is that attorneys who are often at the edge of these types of things, whether it's a contract or some other form of the, something that requires cybersecurity and authentication and things like that, um, are really generally not very data literate or technology literate. And that becomes a challenge because I, I don't know what types of uh, spookiness they would see in it, despite the fact that we might understand it, they don't. And if they don't, they're not going to adopt it. They're not going to feel comfortable, just like with machine learning, which I think is a great corollary. There was a certain hype cycle with that. It was a bright, shiny object <laughs> that kind of uh, it fell off because there was a lot of, um, you know, your data is really the, the, the important thing behind AI. And people didn't realize that. They thought you could just point a problem at uh, point of machine learning at a problem, it would fix it. So I, I think that unless and until people can, first of all, from a conceptual standpoint, um, understand it enough, even though it's sound, they don't believe it, believe it's sound. They don't, they don't uh, bring it into to their environment, into their, what they do. So I, I think there's a challenge there. Um, I would be at some point interested in some of the panelists' just, uh, thoughts on that. But I think as a general matter, those are, those are issues to be addressed. Interesting, thank you uh, so much for sharing. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe if I can, I can add to that, Paul. Um, uh, most uh -oh. attorneys, yeah, most attorneys still use uh, fax machines, so they use absolute unencrypted channels. So that's that's another uh, issue here. But yeah, let's go on. Like I, I somehow agree. <laughs> Um, Mark, maybe you can tell us um, or outline for us uh, some of the use cases of quantum crypt cryptography and computing in evolving technologies, uh, specifically when it comes to cloud computing. Um, yeah, well, so in, for now, these two fields, quantum computing and quantum cryptography, they, uh, they are evolving in parallel. There's not much relation between the two. Um, Quantum computing is very much focused on, well, developing quantum computers for sure, but there are lots of people working on applications, trying to, to find use cases in optimization and machine learning for the long-term and also some, some uh, shorter-term applications regarding, for example, drug discovery or uh, simulation of, uh, of molecules. So the, this is, a, this is growing fast in terms of hardware and uh, the applications are being developed already uh, today, and in parallel, this field of uh, of um, quantum communication is very much focused right now on securing well securing communications uh, by using hardware um, quantum hardware to to distribute encryption keys. Um, 
And um, another another application that is that we see evolving today is to to use these quantum communication networks for uh, designing secure storage systems. Uh, and now this becomes interesting because uh, companies, for example, in healthcare, need very long-term secure storage for their for their data, but also they need their data. I mean, they they. they their data have, have a value, right? They, they want to be able to, uh, to, to use those data uh, for performing machine learning on top of them, for example, right? So the, the whole question of how to, to combine, um, to combine uh, the encryption that fits well in this, uh, in this scheme of quantum cryptography with uh, machine learning techniques, uh, it's something that we see as uh, an important next step in the development of, uh, of quantum networks. Now there is a, there is a further term uh, that we'll probably um, speak later on is when these two fields will, will actually merge. Uh, I mean, today on the internet, we have computers and networks and one day we will have also quantum networks connecting quantum computers, but let's, let's keep that for, for later. So right now, um, the main question is, uh, well, the main use case for quantum communication, quantum communication is how to secure, uh, secure communications, secure storage, and then how to secure computation on top of the classical computation, uh, machine learning uh, on top of this, uh, of this um, uh, encryption, and then longer term, how to perform quantum machine learning on top of these, uh, of these networks. Thank you, Mark. Um, Natalie, maybe you can expand a bit on that with um, your thoughts on the future of encryption challenges that um, the cloud is facing. Yeah, gladly. So the cloud is an enabler and has challenges at the same time. I mean, it all depends on your use case. Um, for example, if you have your own data center and you want to have specific parts of an application or your system um, to be more to be made more secure along zero trust principles, for example, then it's easier to lift and shift a little part of your application where you have very critical data and do efficient. Um, uh, an efficient architecture there for key cycling, um, parameter change that you have, you know, not just a VPN connection where you then have a trusted network, but then different types of um, uh, DMZ zones or privileged, ac privileged access zones, depending on what users are allowed to use what in that application. And then of course, if we go in towards these zero trust, um, principles, then you also don't trust the cloud provider. So because the cloud is inherent, well, the big cloud providers, not all cloud providers, um, have this flexibility and modularity in itself, you can also do your own key management. So it's an enabler for encryption to use all these different types of technologies and lift and shift it outside of your own legacy system, so to say. Um, and at the same time, cloud providers pose the challenge that they need to, you need to have some sort of secure computation, you know, towards that cloud provider. So the third party, that cloud provider can't see the data you're processing. So you can have secure and clouds in their companies and startups that do that sort of thing. 
And then, you know, within that cloud, you can further micro segment um, specific parts of your organization or application. And it makes it inherently easier if you know how to configure it, for example. So it's, it's not a trivial task because I know it's annoying to say, but it's very use case specific. So you need to know your data, you need to know your application, your organization. And that assessment is paramount before you um, have all these encryption challenges before that. Encryption in itself, we have standards. Um, I think Maeva, Maeva knows it best, like NIST somehow. Well, it don't, doesn't dictate, but it gives good examples how to do it right. Um, and we can live by them that other organizations are giving us standards, especially towards PQC, because which company could um, evaluate all these different algorithms for asymmetric encryption? It's, it's almost crazy what uh, brain power is behind that, yeah. Definitely, and I, I, I agree, context, uh, context is key. Um, and we'll get into some more use cases hopefully soon. Um, I wanted to ask Mark, um, Very Cloud is working on a secure quantum cloud at the moment. Maybe you can tell us a bit about what it is and how it's secured. I mean, we, we do work on the quantum cloud, but, uh, but I wouldn't say at the moment. This is, um, this is still a small part of our activity, but this, uh, this is the, the motivation for, for creating the company in the first place. Uh, still the, the, the biggest opportunity for us is short term, but this horizon of a secure quantum cloud is something that is, was a very strong motivation from, from day one. It's actually a, a field of research that was founded by my, my co-founder, Elhan Kashifi. Um, so the, 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 the idea is that um, in quantum computing, uh, I mean, we all heard about the companies developing quantum computers today, and they all spend a lot of money on that. And the way they see return is that, well, not much people are going to buy their computers, so they are going to put it in the cloud and, uh, and offer cloud access to the computer. And this is something that you actually already run. You can, you can, um, you can connect to IBM's website and run programs on their quantum computer directly by programming it uh, online. The problem is that, and, and this is a problem already today, the problem is again on data security, right? Uh, would Paul, for example, run uh, a quantum optimization on the cloud um, on data that belongs to someone else? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure it's possible to do it. I mean, in Europe, we have strong, strong laws against uh, data sharing, but um, uh, so it might not be possible. And maybe, maybe also you don't want to send your algorithm to IBM or Google or Amazon because they, they have the computer and you have to send them the algorithm. It turns out that um, if you can connect your quantum computer to a quantum network and the client has access a very, 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 um, easy technology with very small technology has access through this quantum channel to the quantum computer. Uh, it, is, uh, it turns out there is a very natural way to encrypt not only the communication, but also the whole program that you're running on top of the, on, on the quantum algorithm, right? So this is what we, we call a secure quantum cloud. But what happens then is that the, the computer doesn't learn anything about the data 
doesn't learn anything about the program it's executing and doesn't learn anything about the output. And this happens with very small overhead on top of the computation. So it's kind of magical. And this is the, the magic of quantum information, I, I would say. Right, so today we're already working on how to build these applications. Uh, but of course, I mean, it needs a quantum computer. So this is a longer term for us. But, uh, but just as people are developing quantum computers, we believe that we need to start developing the technologies for quantum cloud now as well. Fascinating. Um, Maybe maybe you can tell us uh, what can organizations do um, about um, what uh, we consider the quantum threat today. Natalie, you know, talked a bit about how uh, she doesn't see it as existential threat necessarily, um, but more of a challenge. Um, what can organizations do to start um, ensuring the resilience uh, worldwide? Sure, there are some options. And um, as I stated earlier, while standardization efforts are underway, these take time, standards development take time. And as Natalie mentioned, these are not trivial pursuits. So at this time, organizations can take advantage of the free guide I, I supplied earlier from the Department of Homeland Security. Um, it's a great roadmap. Um, it makes it super easy to follow. A, you know, it's a relatively simple guide. But one thing I really urge organizations to do is to, that, to recognize that it is crucial to have a dedicated leader in their organizations tasked with this responsibility of quantum threat mitigation. Effectively, we're all well aware that, you know, the constant cyber threats and attacks that organizations are having to deal with daily demands quite a bit of, you know, time and money, but we cannot afford to neglect this threat. So it really requires a leader um, to take on an enterprise-wide effort. Basically, they need to deploy a task force that is, that is managed by one dedicated leader. Because the bottom line is that threats are constantly evolving. Criminal enterprises will not you know, publish a press release to let us know that they now have these capabilities. It's important to be prudent and responsible. And at the end of the day, I'm not sure how many um, people in the audience or generally keep up with the annual threat assessment report from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, but they publish basically a threat assessment report which reviews serious threats for the United States for the next 12 months. And Quantum is listed in there. It's crucial to note that they're not expecting in a 20 years. This is what they were expecting in the next 12 months. So it is of great concern that a lot of organizations still have not taken a more responsible approach and they've not been intentional about including quantum threat in their enterprise risk management frameworks, for example. Definitely. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, like someone is saying right now in the comments that new standards will require major changes within enterprise networks. Um, Thomas, I maybe you have something um, that you can share with us. Maybe you have a few thoughts you can share with us regarding um, secure cloud computing. So I, I think that, um, you know, secure cloud computing has, all computing, cloud computing or not, you know, is, uh, is a layered approach. Encryption is an important part of it. Authentication is a part of it. There are, you know, you know it depends on if you move out to the edge away from the cloud when you talk about 
internet of things, they talk about root of trust and stuff like that. These are all approaches that are layers of, uh, of security that you want to put in place. I think in cloud computing, the, the issue is you want to use resources and the act of using those resources opens up an opportunity profile for hackers. And, um, and so that's, I think, where you need to be careful. So you want to, like is in the case, and even for keys generated within the cloud for communication between data centers, um, as Alain was talking about before, you want every key you create to be created as close as possible to the source and to not be decrypted as close as possible to the end user. And you want to do that with the highest value key, the most trusted key possible as one example. I think every layer, when we think of encryption, we tend to think about it as, as a mathematical lock and we forget that the most important part of that lock is the key to open it. And in the cloud computing space, um, that, that applies just the same as it does if you're communicating between say your home laptop and your bank, or it, it's the same challenge and the same application that you wanna put in place to protect the encryption. Well, turning now just to a legal perspective on this, because I wanted to get your input. Um, what are some of the legal challenges that can be brought to systems um, authenticated by digital signatures where quantum computing is used? Um, Non-repudiation is a vexing challenge to the trust of KPI, uh, contractual agreements and other trusted systems. So can lawyers keep up? Well, I'm sure Natalie and I could have a sidebar on this. <laughs> um, I think that's going to be a real challenge because, <clears throat> um, and I just wanted to touch on uh, another issue that uh, was just addressed before we move to that, that I see encryption and quantum computing as an enabler because in a lot of our Python meetups that we have with the presentations, they talk about real-time systems that have a throughput of you know millions of transactions and that the encryption slows it down by you know, a third. So the speeding up of that process is really going to enable commercial purpose and really help risk uh, risk approach uh, bring this closer to uh, you know making compliance and security a, a more uh, welcomed topic rather than necessary evil. But I think with regard to you know when you look at what a digital I wrote a book on digital signatures back in 2002 when I was working for RSA. And that was through RSA Press. And we had two lawyers. I was a, an engineer at the time and three other engineers. And it was interesting how difficult it was to get some of the concepts across just between the group. And so I think the issue of repudiation, for example, someone says, I didn't sign this. Um, that wasn't me. How's the lawyer going to attack that? Can they attack quantum you know, computing and, and cryptography? in itself. Can they attack the people who put the, the, the system together? Um, I see problems there, just like I do with machine learning right now. Machine learning algorithms that go off the rail and cause some harm. It's up to the lawyers to um, <clears throat> defend regu regulatory actions or class action lawsuits. And if they don't know what they're doing, their client is not in a good place. And their contractual issues and cyber insurance issues, whether or not they're going to be um, covered by their cyber insurance for an event. So the ability of the, <clears throat> the lawyer to understand these technologies, even though they may be to people like uh, those on the panel, it's like, of course it works. Of course, we have proofs. We have you know, papers that show this. If the lawyers can't buy into it, just like with machine learning, they will 
either push it away or they will um, do it in a way that's not entirely competent. And so I, I, I think that when you get into the issues of you know, a public key infrastructure, contractual agreements, and other trusted systems, you might see a, a lot of things falling down. Um, but I think if we demystify this and we can get people to trust that, even though you don't understand it, just trust that it works or ask someone who can say, yes, it works, who you trust. So I think that's really the, the key there. Natalie, you have a quick, quick question. <laughs> Do you want to add to that before I move on to the next question? Uh, yes. Um, when it comes to the, sorry, it's not about Paul. I somehow agree with lawyers on you with that. Maybe of the quantum threat. Um, I know, well, there's a finding on why it is important now, and it's not all organizations because quantum computers at this point can't do much. And the theoretical efforts on, you know, for example, how to factor 2048 bit RSA integers in eight hours is with 20 million qubits, noisy qubits. So with NISC devices, where we are about we're scraping at the 100 qubit range at the moment. That's expecting to have a quantum computer. If we if were in the 80s, I would expect two nanometer transistors next year, for example. That's, that's a bit unattainable. Um, and that was just earlier this year from Google, the resource estimation of 20 million noisy qubits. Another one has been for, I think, uh, 13,000 or 14,000. 477 days, and that's logical qubits uh, from a French institute. Sorry, I don't know which one exactly, but that's still far away because they they expect multi-mode memory and that doesn't have physical existence in quantum computers. So what the quantum thread is, is now we can, well, not we, but some adversary might, and that's also highly targeted might try to get ciphertext, some sort of RSA ciphertext or ASS they cannot break, for example, A AES um, 256 bit mode of AES is still known not to be breakable, for example. So if we have like this RSA 20, uh, sorry, if we have this RSA ciphertext that is encrypted and we store it, for, I don't know, the next 12, 20 years, your guess is as good as mine until we have enough qubits because it's the future. Um, then if in 20 years, when they can factorize it, because this is all very theoretical at this moment, it becomes a threat because they can take the ciphertext you know, within this year. So it becomes a threat into the, in the future, but they can't factorize or use discrete logarithm algorithms at the moment. So it's it's a weird kind of um, balancing of risk. So what type of data do you want to protect for what measures? Because quantum communication efforts are not cheap. It's sometimes you have to invest a lot into different parts of the technology. And at the same time, you need to know what part of data you have to protect and what type of data has to be enforced to be protected, like personal identifiable information that is handled by, by companies. So it's, it's, it's not easy to say there's a quantum threat. There's a quantum threat in the future, but they can, and there might be nation state adversaries and APTs that want to 
catch ciphertext now than when they think it's important. But the question is, is it that likely? Won't they have other backdoors to find it? It's, it's difficult. Yeah. yeah, could I just say yeah. one thing real quick? <clears throat> when you say something can be in two states at the same time with quantum, that's going to throw a lot of lawyers right at the beginning. They're going to glaze over. As, I mean, we know that we could prove that that's, you know, that's not an issue. But I just want to throw that out there that you have that type of um, questions coming into a lawyer's brain, a jury's brain, a judge's brain. So I'm done. I just wanted to put that out there. So maybe just a I remark wanna... about the, the threat. Sorry, Maeva. Maybe just a remark about the nation state uh, threat. Uh, Every nation has its secrets. And uh, even if uh, 10, 20, 30 years will uh, go by and uh, suddenly um, text and uh, messages and uh, information will be published or decrypted uh, 30 years back. Uh, and of course, and counting because you're collecting the data up until uh, you know, you have the decryption capabilities. Uh, this is can be actually a big problem. Now, we it is easy to talk about nation states uh, due to uh, the, the political nature and the defense and the highly secretive environment. Uh, but every one of us has uh, its own uh, data encrypted, whether it is a uh, financial data and, you know, text and uh, information and data that we store in uh, every cloud. So the fact that there is a threat that data is being uh, collected and will uh, uh, eventually can be uh, decrypted, this is actually, I think, uh, a huge threat in, in many sectors and it affects uh, different uh, players, whether it is nation in nation states or whether it is uh, rich people or uh, companies in the, in the finance world, uh, in the aspect of laws and lawyers, we, we talked about it a lot. Um, so Maybe the way to oops. the way to mitigate, sorry. Uh, no, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. So, so I think in uh, in many aspects, the quantum uh, cryptography or quantum uh, decryption capability is not yet there, but there is a there is a clear understanding and uh, uh, clear steps in order to have um, capabilities today to fight or uh, to mitigate the, the threat of the decryption uh, in the future, what we call the post-quantum cryptography. So uh, I'm not sure, I'm just saying that not everyone is looking at this threat and saying this is like a theoretical threat that eventually will uh, fulfill itself, but uh, actively pursuing uh, and the way to mitigate the threat. Thank you, Alan. Riva, did you have something to add to that? Yes, I agree that uh, actively mitigating the threat is of utmost importance. And I wanted to highlight an earlier comment. In looking at the quantum threat and scenario planning, we don't just consider the public announcements. There's lots happening in stealth mode. There are act a nefarious actor will not tell you what he's working on. So we must be responsible and not just look at what qubit level has been accomplished by, you know, whichever enterprise is announcing it. We cannot ignore that there's a lot going on behind the scenes. 
criminal organizations will not tell you what they're doing. That is a fact. I just really want to stress that this potential, you know, different terms are used for a quantum threat or however you want to use it. It's not 20 years or a decade away. When you assess what's going on and you study the, the intelligence landscape, we have to be realistic that there's lots going on that simply we're not fully aware of. And so it's just important to be responsible and go ahead and address these issues now because it takes time. Most of us have taken part, you know, have participated in transitions and mitigation plans. Um, I've seen some that have failed greatly, even though, you know, millions of dollars were invested. So because I've gone through some of these trials and errors, you know, issues that come along, I feel that it's important for, you know, just organizations to go ahead and start their process. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. You have to recognize what you have, what needs to be protected. It's not a small project. Um, yeah, I just wanted to to get to Thomas quickly and ask him, you know, while we're on the, the topic of post-quantum cryptography, and what is likely timeline for the next generation of encryption algorithms? Yeah, I, I think that there's, um, there's a tendency to think of there as being one hard gate for implementation. And there is a plan for the standards body on when they're going to come out. You know, they review, there's different milestones along the way, and there's a date in which they'll pick one. Um, there's already companies who have designed products and are making them available now that say, hey, we know which one they're going to pick, and this product has already worked to it. But if, if you followed and lived through, as I did, the evolution of encryption algorithms over the last 20 plus years, um, what happens is there's going to be products released before the official standards are signed off. There's going to be last minute changes. There'll be products that have updates for that. And then, and even once the standards are rock solid and there's products that are rock solid that meet those standards, um, it'll be years before they deploy. You know, if you look at the pace that some people believe uh, AES is displacing RSA, you know, it's, you know, decades, you know, the, talking about algorithms that are available for decades and the, the speed of adoption, unless there's a catastrophic failure, the speed of adoption is going to be pretty slow. So what, what we look at is, when we look at it, um, as Alain was talking before, I love his term, the highest quality, high value keys. We look at doing that, the, the importance to that is that provides value now and it provides value during the whole arc of time in which eventually PQC algorithms will displace classical algorithms. And, and then, you know, you can argue whether that's, you know, two years, that's ridiculously short time, or 30 years, which is a ridiculously long time. Uh, but somewhere in that arc, it's going to be slower. The, the actual adoption is going to be slower than the availability of the technology. And so when you're designing products and deploying your plans for the security of, of your cloud or your IoT device or your cell phone, you have to allow for the fact that just because the PQC algorithms become available doesn't mean that's the same day they'll be deployed everywhere in the world. And, and uh, that's sort of how I view the timeline. There's a, a, tech, there's a standards timeline, a technical availability timeline, but an actual adoption rate timeline, which is going to have a very long tail, like every other algorithm has had over the last um, 20 years. Great. Thank Thomas, you. So much. Uh, mm -hmm. Thomas, I would like to maybe add my perspective. Uh, I think what plays uh, for adoption is actually the availability of technology, because now um, and the way uh, things are uh, being developed, you're hosted uh, over uh, public cloud uh, 
suite, like, and uh, you get, you consume services from uh, different uh, service providers. And eventually, once uh, PQC will be standardized and uh, evolved over time, it can be uh, it can be created and uh, used as a service. Meaning that uh, if you are a, a product company that uh, builds kind of some kind of a, a SaaS or some kind of a service that uh, utilizes uh, cryptography within it. Uh, the availability via the public clouds and the networks can actually uh, maybe ad create an uh, adoption rate that is much more faster and than what we see today with encryption. I guess I think a fast adoption kind of rate is always yeah, a fast adoption rate is always the dream. In every technology I've worked with in my career, it's always the dream. And, and there is always early adopters, and then there's always the first part of the consumers, the real volume consumers, the real, but then there's the tail end and in, in every technology, the tail end tends to have you know, a lot longer than everyone anticipated. There's always, it tends to be some economic or, or implementation reason why it slows down for the last 40% of the potential deployments or 50%. And, but, the, but you still need to provide security for that 40 to 50%, no matter how long the adoption uh, takes. And there's something that taking them to consideration that the timeline, that timelines always stretch and we hate it, but they always do. Yeah, I think it's a, if I can, I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, sure. Well, I, you know, Natalie, uh, you can give a, a quick response. I just wanted to uh, get a final question out before we move on to Q&A, but go ahead. Mm -hmm. Oh, fine. Um, so yeah, I do agree. Like adoption timelines are, very important and it's also important to do threat mitigation but you have to be clear on what you have what you need and what you can do not every organization has the capability like huge corporations and of course nation states for example so some customers still use ssl so what is that adoption timeline for example you can't just tell them to use pqc because their legacy systems won't work with that for example you know on top of it then there's performance versus security if you have absolutely long session instantiation people won't want to use it and they will take the risk of not having a secure encryption so it's always this trade-off um and yes uh, pqc will be very interesting and very fruitful but i won't i don't think we will get far with convincing people with fear that it will be a threat it's not a threat, it's actually an economic advantage to do this. You can advertise that you're secure so your, your clients and customers stay with you because you provide them with the security. It's not because it's enforced or you know, enforced with fear, it's, it's an economic advantage. And quantum computing and quantum technologies competing not in itself, like QRNGs are a perfect example of that. It's an economic advantage. I wanted to get a final question out to the panel before we move on to Q&A. Um, what are some of the challenges that you guys see to the advancements um, in cryptography where criminal enterprises use onion routers um, to hide identity and activity? Uh, yeah, I guess, was I supposed to sort of tick up the... Uh, you can yeah. go ahead, Paul. Yeah, yeah I, uh, 
that was a question that I thought was an important one. Uh, for those who don't know, the onion router is basically a, a, a mechanism by which anyone can hide their identity and the, and the purpose of their communication by using a series of hops through the internet, basically to different little nodes that use Diff Diffie-Hellman key exchange to um, allow this, um, this communication, it's, it, it, but it's also the backbone of the dark web. So, I, which is part of what we're talking about because when you have an incident, information gets sold on the dark web. So the first thing people do on an incident is start to search the dark web, but they can't if there's encryption being used by the uh, hackers and the, the criminals and so forth. My thought there was that there may be sort of a leapfrogging. How advanced is law enforcement in understanding um, this type of crypt cryptography? Will the criminals use quantum cryptography in their quest? And so I, I thought that there was this sort of, and I wouldn't necessarily be able to speak to that, but I think there is an issue there with law enforcement. That's how I started my career, by the way, was in law enforcement, <clears throat> and then went through information security. But I see that as an issue. Is it how is the how is the law enforcement criminal balance going to be affected? And I that's a good question, maybe for some of the other panelists. But that's that's the high level issues I see. So I actually think uh, in the aspect of uh, tools for uh, anonymity and uh, privacy uh, that the, the the initial motivation is uh, freedom of speech and uh, and active rights. Um, supporting active rights uh, movements so like onion routers and uh, different uh, messaging uh, platforms like uh, signal and telegram they will actually be the first to adopt the post quantum uh, cryptography and like any good platform it will do its job uh, both for the good guys and uh, the bad guys so i guess in uh, in many aspects um, law enforcement and uh, different uh, defense agencies uh, should and will come up with a solution uh, that I'm not sure it's going to involve uh, attacking the cryptography, but maybe you know reaching to to the devices uh, themselves. But uh, the irony is nice because uh, all of the tools like uh, Onion Routers, Tor, Telegram, Signal they will preach and do the job to have the PQC and eventually will be utilized not only for the uh, good things, but uh, for the bad things as well. That's the good and yep. bad side of the uh, technology tools. I mean, recently identified, uh, you know, a few years ago, ISIS networks were communicating on Telegram, you know, and so, so we can already see. Yeah, maybe you have something to add. No, okay. I thought you raised uh, I was, I spoke up. Um, I agree. I mean, we can see, a, you know, ransomware keys that they use the newest types of encryption. And um, well, it's not just the newest type of encryption, but they get really creative and then can encrypt every endpoint. And when you pay the ransomware, they give you thousands of tens of thousands of keys that then you have to kind of look which endpoint belongs to which key, etc. cetera. Um, but then again, nation states also have their APG groups. There are some you know, rumored APT groups like Fancy Bear, Cozy Bear from Russia that work with the nation state that will, and Russia does have a new initiative where they build quantum computers recently, more recently than other states. Uh, and for example, China is very far ahead in the, in the quantum race. 
So the question is, these APTs work with the government. So is it going to be like some sort of political game at the same time? Because you can harm economies of another state to see how you can get further ahead, for example. But that is highly political and hypothetical. But yes, it, it is within the realm of the possible, in my opinion. Great. Um, well, thank you so much, Natalie, and thank you everyone for your vast insights and a, for a really wonderful discussion. Um, these were all super fascinating topics related to merge, merging uh, security challenges. So I'm really glad that we got to cover them here today. Um, I just uh, now would like to take the opportunity, we have about 20 minutes left, um, to open up the floor to our attendees. Anyone who might have a question, feel free to drop it in the Q&A box below. Like I said, you can find the Q&A, the chat works too. Some of you have already sent some. So I'm just going to go uh, through them one by one. Um, we have a question here from uh, Rohan, um, joining us from India. He asks, uh, can you please give some insight on the use of advanced hardware cryptographic chips in use and what importance you see ahead of such chips uh, in the future? Ahead for some chips, for these chips in the future. Yeah. Anyone? Thomas, uh, you should take this one. Yeah, Thomas, I was thinking you. Well, so right now at ID Quantique, we've been focused on using the quantum technology for uh, the entropy, the quantum entropy, and therefore the uh, quantum random numbers and the highest possible key creations. So uh, we definitely have a timeline. There's definitely a timeline for that technology to get embedded or merged with the encryption engines themselves. Right now, they sit side by side in the designs where they are deployed. Um, it is part of my job over time to continue to shrink everything down, to continue to merge, shrink, reduce power consumption, reduce cost. Um, but today, uh, the actual deployed quantum technologies, the random numbers sit side by side with the, to the encryption chip. I think from the aspect of chips, it is uh, rather hard to uh, predict. Uh, you can uh, maybe feel more comfortable to talk about quantum computing machines uh, the day when we have like a qubit uh, processing unit on a, on a, on a phone or or a chip or are not are not near, so I guess it's more about the fulfillment and maturity of the quantum computing machines itself. From but we do have we do have the quantum enhanced cryptography on the phones already. So um, the good news is that before the quantum computers are available to break things, we're already starting to see a deployment of technology to defend. And uh, very nice uh, to see so the defense coming out uh, first. And, and it, you know, it's like all races, it's gonna keep going. The, they'll keep increasing computers with the number of qubits. They'll, as um, Mark talked about earlier, eventually the development of algorithms and development of qubits will merge. Right now they're separate. And so there's gonna be a lot of work to be done to keep in front of even these post-quantum cryptography algorithms that we're talking about, they will have a shelf life. Eventually, everything will get ripped up and become old technology. And, and we're just guessing whether the shelf life is five years or 50 years, but it, uh, it's nothing is forever. And I think with quantum computing, shelf lives of everything will shrink. Thomas, maybe you can help um, to yeah. Oh, sorry, did Mava, did you want to add to that? I was going to ask Thomas, how are the Samsung devices performing? Have they been well received? Are customers seeking them out because of this new technology? 
Yes, yeah, so it's uh, these first, it's not just Samsung phones, by the way, but they were clearly the first, and uh, that's what I have in my pocket. Um, they are well-received. Um, like all brand new technologies, the very first people to get them tend to be the early adopters, the people who get them and want to play with them. People call me up and, and say, I've got one, you know, and drop me a line. What can I do with it? And uh, But yes, they are being well-received. Let's say that, you know, when you sell more than a million of something, um, you know, that's more than just uh, hobbyists, you know, there's uh, fooling around with it. But if, you know, if you look at any um, mass market, there is levels of adoption. There's, okay, there's the first hobbyists, and then there's the first 10%, and then the first 40%. And where, I would say where, where you know, and then eventually everybody has it in their pocket. And so we're still on the early part of that curve. Um, but, you know, when you've done more than a million units, we're certainly not just a hobbyist and, uh, and people are deploying it. There's different kinds of applications. You can find one. There's press releases on some of them already. They're already being used. There are a couple of banks that now offer quantum enhanced security banking accounts. So there's a chip inside the phone. You have to have one of the phones. You have to have a, a phone with, the, with our chip in it. Um, and on the other end, they use uh, the QRNG at their servers at those banks when they're creating keys on their end. So it's end to end. Um, so there's already two banks that are, where you can go and open a quantum enhanced bank account, which is just wonderful. Um, and so, yes, there is some adoption, but you know we're still in that phase where there are uh, more people who don't know about the existing of it, much less you know the adopters. You know, it's it's still pretty early. The first one came out. The first deployment, the chip hasn't existed very long. All the older generation, um, QRNGs existed this November, uh, next month will be 20 years since the first QRNG was invented. 20 year anniversary, I believe is November 4th. But um, so the QRNGs existed for a long time, but they were systems. And in the early days, they were boxes, racks. And then over time they shrank and for a long time they were boards and then they shrank and then they were USB sticks. And it's only been since um, it's actually still less than two years since the first QRG chip uh, was created. And the first mass market deployment was in May of uh, 2020. So it's not quite 18 months. And for in 18 months, they've already sold more than a million. It's actually remarkable, in my opinion. Congratulations. Thank you, Thomas. Um, Mark, this next question is for you. Um, one of audience members asking and uh, can you please tell us more of what uh, um cloud is in the direction of more quantum computing and uh, quantum cryptography and can you discuss the advantages of your approach to other approaches many things i think you covered a bit of it can you can expand a little too yeah a little bit i mean i was describing this layered approach oops sorry i'm getting some feedback yeah um, this layered approach where we, we start by developing secure communications, then we integrate into uh, cloud infrastructure for secure storage, then we uh, develop on top of that uh, classical secure computation, and then on top of that quantum secure uh, computation or secure quantum computation, right? So what, we, what we're doing right now, I would say that we, we are spending 70% of what we're doing on secure, uh, secure communication. Sorry, uh, 20 on secure storage, uh, seven on secure classical computing, and the, the rest on secure quantum computing. But um, um, it all relies on existing technology. Um, and we are mostly assembling what 
exists to uh, to try either to build well, products or uh, POCs or uh, demos or uh, you know just research uh, research papers, so to say. Yeah. Right. So the, all these layers are at very different uh, readiness uh, levels. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I, I mean, there's a, also a continuity in the technology that we use, right? It's, it's also for us, um, the first layer will be reduced in the second and then in the third and in the fourth. So that it's, um, it's very, it's very well defined planned toward, uh, toward this, la this last, um, this last mile, which is the, the secure quantum cloud. Great, thank you. Um, we have time minutes left, so I'm gonna um, speed through these. Um, is there any interest in mapping classical uh, cryptographic primitives to quantum? Maybe I can elaborate on that. There's a lot of, um, there's a misconception that a quantum computer is a computer in itself that is Turing-like, but it has a host CPU. So it's more of an integrated circuit, like a GPU. You have to, <laughs> sort of use it for very specialized tasks. Um, and I'm not sure which classical cryptographic primitive you mean, but it needs some sort of memory it's need and that doesn't exist yet. Well, we have read-only memory, so the qubits only in itself are uh, posing as memory while you do some operations on them. Um, but no, I don't think there has been some idea. We have like cryptographic protocols in quantum BBQ 848, I think is very well adopted, but uh, the classical counterparts less so. Hey, can I, I just really yeah. quickly, I'm just gonna ask the question, re-ask, because I have the same question. Is there a way that we can look at quantum computing in a simpler form so that it gets adopted more easily or use it in a way that's more conventionally understood? Uh, as, it, the way we think of, you know, this asymmetric encryption and stuff, is there a way of starting there with regard to the to how we can maybe uh, bring it into adoption sooner, or is that a myth? If I'm if I'm making sense, I'm not sure if this is a myth in itself. It's just so much, and you know, it's more part of a theoretical approach. Like, that yeah, I, I'm not sure. I, I guess, well, I'm not sure what inspired the question. I know we have other questions, so I don't want to get too caught up yeah, in this, but I think that I always, what we do here at Privacy Labs is we always look for conventional first and simple first because people understand it and it's easier to debug, if you will. It's easier to know what's going on. Is there a way to use something at quantum uh, cryptography that's a simpler version of something more advanced? And, or is there some way in using uh, uh, crypt? Uh, quantum cryptography in a way that's more conventionally understood? And it sounds like no. Well, actually there, there are little parts of it, like the seed, like an art, you know, a random number generator, a quantum random number generator just has perfect entropy, perfect random entropy versus a, um, uh, a true random number generator that uses thermal fluctuations or meteorological fluctuations, whichever you want that are not perfect and don't, do have some sort of patterns. Worst in a CPU, they're sequential and you have real patterns in your random number generator that makes them less secure. So in a way, a quantum computer could, you could measure qubits and just have like outputs of uh, random numbers that would make part of it, like use it for a seed. I have another question here for you guys and I'm just gonna speed through them, like I said, um, but it's a bit of a long one, so hang in there with me. Um, 
When you have a QRNG, you're producing random bits. But as a user, when you get a black box, even if you are able to assess the mathematical quality of the generated randomness and the results are good, how can you prove that produced bits were not predetermined? In other words, is there today a good device-independent QRNG allowing the user to prove quantumness slash randomness in real time um, by, for example, violating Bell inequalities or samples of qubits? In this case, could it lead to a don't trust verify norm for com commercial ran randomness? There we go. Um, so I think I'll jump in on the front end of this one. <laughs> Um, just on the front end, when you talk about QRNG, when you talk about the specs, NIST, uh, BSI, common criteria, you know, passing FIPS, um, all of them, in order to get certified, they don't, you don't certify a set of data. The actual submission from us, from IDQ and from anyone like us, involves also submitting our architecture and our um, process for creating it. So the part of your question, it's a multi-part question, but the part of the question that talks about, um, you know, device, um, you know, predetermined numbers from devices, the certification doesn't involve looking at a stream of data and saying, oh, that's random. Certification involves looking at the math and physics behind the device, the architecture of the device, the process used to build the device. We have like a 17-page document we have to submit just on the manufacture of the device to prove that the device is not um, putting out something that accidentally isn't random or something like that. So the, the, the proof is not just to measure data, as you pointed out in your question. The proof is a very exhaustive study of the entire man, design and manufacture of any, any random number generator, not just a quantum one. They all go through that process if they're going to get certified. And that's the biggest part of the answer to you. There's some part in there about using qubits and bell inequalities. Um, the, there's a lot of experimentation on that, but every random number generator that I know of that's actually deployed, including ours at IDQuantique, do not use um, qubits or any or use a computer to generate them. I know that there are that there are older style things where people in software can use the very old-fashioned pseudo-random number generator in software to get uh, randomness. I don't know how many. Maybe there's still people using those in the world, but um, but nothing modern does that. It's all you know, that's, um, uh, yes, the first NASA use of uh, where they claimed uh, the quantum supremacy was uh, creating random numbers, but I think that was an exercise. It wasn't, if I, I don't think it was a legitimate desire to use an expensive uh, quantum computer to generate random numbers when there's very inexpensive ways to do it now. Yeah. I agree. Maybe there's a part of the question that, that uh, stood out to me, for example, that um, you can predetermine and pre-store uh, quantum random numbers. That is, as a, well, you can do it with ID Quantique and do it in real time, but I know of some data centers that when it was more difficult to have some sort of thermal noise, because data centers shouldn't be very noisy in itself thermally, um, they were pre-storing them for for a specific length of the you know quantum random numbers in a specific length, and then to generate keys in their cycles because they didn't have any connectivity to any sort of quantum random number generated. Yeah, I think I think our view is that that opens up a place for a hacker to hack it. If you yeah. if you create a random number that's supposed to be random and then you store it somewhere and somebody reads it, that they can reproduce the key. It's not I don't want to say that's trivial, but it's actually very possible. Exactly. And so the whole 
the, the whole point of, um, let's say, best practice, I'll call it best practice, best practice is to be creating the random number while you're consuming the random number to create uh, the highest value key, and to do so right where the data is being created. You don't want to create a random number here and ship it halfway around the world and then try to use it to create a key because, again, that opens up a, an attack surface where, and, and, and we, we want to minimize that in every way. Um, so what you're saying is something I've heard people have done in the past. They just assume that it's hard to take, you know, even though their story, if somebody steals the random number, it's hard to make the key. Well, it's hard, but it's very possible. That's especially with uh, modern uh, computing power in the cloud. Uh, but uh, so I, I see that going away. You make a great point, but I see that going away because of the ability to have very low cost, uh, high quality random number generation anywhere. I just want to, to add something to that. I Sorry, to, but I, have to, I have to end it here. We have a few, just uh, one or two more. If you guys would like, we can extend another 10 minutes and then we can uh, we have time to discuss. Is that okay for everybody? Yeah, okay. okay. Go ahead, Mark. No, the only thing I, I wanted to, to say is that the question is also going further um, than that. Um, indeed, there is this ability of quantum systems to, to sort of self-certify themselves, uh, meaning that I can, I can get a guarantee from, from the, what I do to this quantum system by measuring it and observing it, I can get a guarantee of what it is. And you can use that to produce this very um, well, not high quality, but high, high, highly secure uh, random numbers, random numbers that sort of certify that it was not predetermined, just by observing the, the statistics. Now, this is a very nice uh, proposal. Uh, it's also deeply routed in the, 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 the foundations of the physics uh, of uh, entanglement. But as far as I know, it's very far from anything practical. Uh, however, there is a strong interest from NIST. Uh, some of the breakthrough experiments were performed there, and uh, I'm, I, well, I'm not sure whether if there is an effort towards standardization, but uh, there's uh, certainly a lot of work there happening there. Yes. Neva is going to have to drop off, so I'll just really quickly thank you so much for and we hope to see you again. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Neva. Take care. Um, so maybe, maybe just to. Uh, take another angle of what uh, Natalie, Thomas, and Mark uh, just stated. Uh, if you have the ability to create a large amount of uh, uh, random, uh, random bits, and uh, you can actually move it from place to place safely and store it safely, and I'm totally uh, uh, seeing the point about the, the attack vector, uh, you can utilize the one-time pad uh, capability, which is actually the unbreakable best encryption uh, methodology uh, uh, that can be used. So I think it's another angle. Um, if you can have a very qualitative key with a um, huge amount of data of, uh, of, uh, of a key to utilize the, the one-time pad. Great, I'm gonna move on to the next question. Here we have um, a question from Robert regarding IoT devices. Um, the migration of TPQC and quantum cryptography is the most massive and complex migration in history. It will take years to prepare for successful implementation. This task should not be underestimated. How will we address IoT and resource constrained devices? 
and what is the impact on unconstrained um, uh, the constrained IoT industry? Maybe that's something for Mark because one of his co-founders worked on quantum puffs, so it's physical and clonable, and clonable functions, and that means you have like some well, a puff of physical and clonable function on an IoT device is um, impurities or yeah impurities in the manufacturing, and you try to read it out with low voltage, for example, and it's like a fingerprint of the device for authentication token. And quantum puff takes it like a step further, where um, you don't have any side channel attacks, so it means any heart rate attacks, so it can mimic this sort of thing. Maybe you'll elaborate on that. Yeah, well, I don't have much to say. I mean, as far as I know, the, the motivation, one of the motivations, sorry, <laughs> is to, uh, to, to do authentication in IoT, right? Which is a, a big, uh, big issue. Uh, but once again, it's so far it's at the stage of a, of a proposal. I hope we'll see something tangible in the next five years. We actually say. have the, the first puff, the first quantum puff device already exists, huh? and uh, yeah, it does. Actually, I have one here on my desk somewhere, although I didn't prepare for that. But um, but what you said, Natalie, is exactly right. I think that the the roadmap to a complete solution for IoT is not quite um, carved out yet. Um, but we certainly believe and enough in the Puff to have it one of the technologies we're pursuing. We already made the first quantum Puff device. And it will, I think that, um, you know, IoT has a lot of challenges, particularly power challenges. So what does IoT mean? IoT is kind of a broad term. If you, if you, if you stretch it all the way to include, like, say, RFID devices, where it's um, labeling the amount of product in a container, um, valuable information you don't want stolen, but there's not a lot of power available. I mean, physical power, you know, voltage and current available to do work. So how do you protect that without spending a lot of power consumption on advanced PQC as an example? So there's, there's no one easy solution. One of the reasons why, in addition to our work with the future of working with PQC, we're working with Puff and QPuff, as you said, is for the very low power consumption requirements out there where some of the more advanced cool stuff that might work, but there might not be enough power to run it at the extreme edge of the internet of things. Yeah, absolutely right. There's also, it just popped up in my head um, for IoT devices. In my earlier professional life, Microsoft, there's been a surge with um, Azure Sphere. So it's a small chip for secure connectivity into the cloud, Azure specifically, for example. And uh, Starbucks rolled out in every of their, um, uh, you, you know, the monetary systems. Uh, I, don't, I don't know the cash yeah, the, cashier, the cashier registers. They put this address P device because it has a connectivity into the cloud. And they were, have been hacked through their cashier system so many times <laughs> that they had to roll this out. So yeah, it, it's like the perfect trivial example why we need these encryption methods in IoT devices because they're, one of the biggest vulnerabilities, especially printers, especially printers. Yeah, you mentioned, uh, someone mentioned earlier, a fax machine. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, but the, the, they use unencrypted channels. Like you can't help that anymore. It's like using smoke signals for everyone to see. Very useful. Um, next question we have uh, is a two-part question. Number one, um, how do we know that state-sponsored cyber attackers have not made even more progress with quantum-related threats as we know it. Um, and uh, maybe, you know, maybe we'll answer that first briefly, not before I move on to the second part, because it's uh, a bit unrelated. 
I think we don't it, know. It's it's rooted in academia, and academia is is a very small place for for quantum computing. Every almost everybody knows each other, and who's working at the bleeding edge of of science and research. So it's very difficult to not collaborate and then be at the forefront. It is possible, but it's highly unlikely that no one will know about it in academia because they're not that tight-lipped. I mean, it's still academia because it needs to collaborate. It's not like industry. So they live from this cross-functionality and, and interdisciplinarity because a quantum computer is not an easy, yeah, it's not easy to build. Let's just say that. Can we take I a think there, I think there are efforts from different nation states. Uh, definitely, the the superpowers: uh, U.S., Russia, China. Uh, and uh, this thing can be a rather game changer. So it will be very likely that they will put effort uh, to develop uh, some kind of capability, and uh, it will, which will mature over time. And they will be very quiet about it, uh, because if you have like the superpower weapons that can, you know, make you see what everyone else is uh, saying and thinking, you're not going to tell anyone about it. Sure. I guess that kind of leads into the second part of this question: was let's say hypothetically um, RSA was to be broken by quantum cryptoanalysis, uh, then we cannot fix it and with lines of code, maybe looking into what are some of the different use cases or even replacements that can be used? Well, it, in itself, you can't break an algorithm. The, the thing about cryptoanalysis with Compton is it will take days, months, maybe years to break just one cipher text. It's not going to be a whole suit of, there's huge energy expenditure and cost behind identifying which cipher text to break. So you have this intelligence advantage so it's not going to be a whole algorithm suit we can upgrade to higher or bigger bit length of ciphertext you can use otp at the moment so one time pad is encryption for every single bit it's hugely expensive to store and recycle, you can't just store it as it is. You have to use a new key and have a new OTP cipher. It's highly unlikely that we will just discard RSA for everything. There will be um, types of data that you have to make more secure, but for some applications that will be just fine, is my opinion. And is this from the same attendee? Another question is asked is, can we take a guess here on how many years, more years we have left of the current implementation um, of let's say RSA or AES? Um, if we cannot guess, then what should we do? <laughs> I think AES and RSA are two different cases. In the case of RSA, it is basically just a matter of time until uh, there will be the capability of uh, compute the uh, the large prime numbers and then it will be broken. AES is not proven to be uh, broken by to be uh, that confident that quantum computing or quantum cryptography can break it. It doesn't mean that it doesn't but it has not been proven as opposed to RSA. Now in the aspect of years 
I think uh, Natalie stated it very clear before, the, the amount of uh, computing power is uh, enormous and we are just at the beginning uh, of, uh, of uh, this technology. So it's very hard to assess uh, how many years uh, it will take to break the RSA. Uh, AES, maybe someday will prove that it can be uh, broken via uh, quantum cryptography. This is not the case for now. Yeah, however, I mean, you're right. There, there are a lot of theoretical um, proposals how to break RSA in itself with quantum gate. You know, there's whole algorithms that show it, uh, but they're based on shore. Um, there are theoretical assumptions that you can break uh, AES 128 and 192-bit mode um, with Grover. There's, it's a different type of algorithm for, for search. So it's not factorization in itself, but for key search. So you try to brute force it. And uh, Grover would give you a quadratic speed up, for example. It's all information theory. It's not been tried out or proven. Um, and in that way, you would not need, you know, two to the power of, of 192 bits, but I mean about two to the power of 96 keys. And this is still, possible to then brute force with a classical computer. So you do like a pre-sampling with a quantum computer like that integrated to a very specialized thing. And then later on brute forces with a supercomputer. That might be in the realm of possible, not at the moment, but then again, just use AES 256 bit mode. <laughs> yeah, going back to what I was saying in the, in the beginning, it's very hard to make predictions <laughs> long-term, especially in the long-term. Very true. We have I think we have a clear picture of what the technology would like would look like in five to ten years, but beyond that, yeah. um, just we have a few more minutes, so I'll, I'll throw out a final question before we wrap up. Um, Adam is asking, how how do you guys see the future of side channels, side channel attacks? They have to be very sophisticated. Side channel attacks. Well, sorry, I'm talking all the time. Side channel attacks are not um, you know one of the most used things. I think eighty percent around a lot of attacks uh, involve credential user misuse in a network. So mm -hmm. side channel attacks have to be highly sophisticated. Someone needs to know the hardware, they need to know the architecture and they need to know how to use it or maybe even have hardware access. Side channel attacks are extremely difficult to make. And with a quantum computer, there are not many quantum physicists who even know down to the hardware level how to break it. I mean, you could look at the control system or the, or the cryo fridge to break, but if you want to break a quantum computer, but side channel attacks in itself are very rare. Yeah, but probably would have given the same answer, you know, the day before Paul Kosher plugged his oscilloscope on the, on the chip and, uh, and uh, extracted public keys, uh, private keys like this. Uh, so yeah, this, this is probably more a threat than quantum computers, right? In the sense that this can be, remain hidden and um, something that, you know, hostile organization can work on rather, I mean, it's much easier than developing a quantum computer. Absolutely. Someone can click on a, on a link in a spam email or, you know, plug in a USB that they found in a driveway in front of their company. That's like more of a common vector. And e-crime is going to use let the least effort to make the biggest impact. So I think such an attacks are quite high, the unlikely. Right. 
Thank you guys so much. And thank you for, uh, for your wonderful insights. Thank you to everyone for joining us today. Um, thank you to each of our panelists, Alon Saban, Thomas Stengel, uh, Paul Starrett, Mark Kaplan, Natalie Kilber, and Neva Gonda, who's already left us. Um, but we, uh, I really enjoyed today's discussion and I think our audience did too. Uh, so really appreciate that you could be here. Um, we hope that everyone is staying safe and healthy um, at home and we look forward to hosting many more discussions like these. Uh, to get in touch with any of today's panelists, feel free to reach out to them directly. All of today's attendees will be receiving an email in the coming days with uh, some contact information, each of our panelists. So don't be afraid to drop them a line if you have further questions on any of today's topics. And I'm sure that you do <laughs> just uh, based on um, the breadth and complexity of it. Um, and to stay up to date on any of our upcoming webinars, if you'd like to, to join us again, if you'd like to see my lovely face again, you can keep up with Hub Security on LinkedIn, on Twitter. We also have a Medium um, and uh, where we publish uh, latest stories coming out of the cyber and security sphere. Uh, and we hope to host um, many of you uh, again, hopefully in the near future. So thank you, everyone. Thank you to our lovely panelists. Thank you. And see you Thank next you time. Much. Thank you.